Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new natural hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the natural hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the natural hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv, back with, yes, you guessed it, a conversation episode, and not just any conversation episode, it is both a returning guest and a spooky season episode, and honestly, like, one of the best things about spooky season, if you ask me, that is Scream Queens. 
Now, of course, we talk scream queens when it comes to mythology, the idea that in myth and in Greek tragedy, there are these characters, these women who we can equate with the traditional scream queens of modern horror slasher fix. Oh my gosh. So I spoke with Vanessa Stovall, who has been on before, and she is so wonderful, and we had so much fun and just talked modern horror movies, and then ancient myths and and Greek tragedy, particularly Persephone and Antigone, uh, and how they can be seen as scream queens in relation to how we understand scream queens from modern horror. Oh my god, really utterly fascinating. Also, I mean, as you can tell in this episode, I will take any and every excuse to talk about movies like Scream, particularly Scream, at any given point. i absolutely love the Scream movies. I I watch them multiple times a year. They are some of my favorite movies of all time. They feel warm and fuzzy to me in a way that maybe slashers shouldn't, uh, but they do. And so, you know, we just had so much fun connecting these to myth and to Greek tragedy and sort of seeing all the ways in which, you know, I mean, obviously this stuff is eternal, right? Like there's a reason, you know, we still love these stories. And I just love putting these kind of modern ideas, modern horror onto these ancient characters. Ugh, it was so much fun. I can't wait for you to hear it. So enjoy. Conversations. Do you like scary movies? Scream Queens of Myth with Vanessa Stovall. Straight up, I'm just so excited for, like, I mean, any spooky season episodes, but particularly, like, so we're talking scream queens in yes. Greek mythology, which is such a fun. I mean, basically, you sent me that message, and I was like, "Hell yeah, absolutely!" Like, I am a huge slasher fan. Like, Scream is my favorite movie of all oh, time. Beautiful. Basically, I've I've Iconic. seen it. Yes, I mean, I watch it like multiple times a year. It is like my life source. <laughs> my sister and I have this whole like friendship based entirely around all of the scream movies i stand by all of them are great i will love them all forever but obviously the first one is like peak and then the second one has cassandra so So it's like yes holy shit Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. it couldn't be Mm -hmm. better yes (laughs) so excited for to talk however you have managed to interpret these women as scream queens i'm so in so please tell me i'm so excited yeah uh so yeah, very excited to be back. Very excited to talk about uh, this very interesting spooky topic. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's actually some interesting, there's some backstory with this one of like how Please. I got to this point. Um, and it goes in a couple different ways. But first, for those who don't know uh, what a scream queen is, I always figure I should go over this. No, that's good. I feel like I know the idea, but I've never tried to define it. So please. And it is one of those sort of like tropes, archetypes that does have sort of a few different definitions slash mm. people apply it to a few different things. But in general, a scream queen uh, tends to be a female protagonist from a horror film um either a main character or sometimes like it's even just like a side character 
Uh, and what they tend to be reduced down to is uh, having a very intense scream uh, with sort of the initial uh, heart of it. Uh, but then it also just sort of broadly came to be more of like a deeply emotive performance uh, in a mm. horror film, something that was very emotionally impactful, uh, usually in a very sort of intense way or heightened way, because it's horror and yeah. horror is a genre of heightenedness. So general examples I tend to give people uh, Nev Campbell in Scream. There we go. Obviously. Iconic. Great. Uh, but people would even say Drew Barrymore at the beginning of Scream. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, she... Because she kind of sets it all up. The Mm -hmm. best thing about Scream, certainly like, you know, the first time you see it and, you know, especially if you saw it back in the day, like I don't I wouldn't have seen it when it came out because it came out in 96. I was like eight. Thank God I was a little young. But, you know, I definitely saw it like still in the 90s, you know, and in that time frame of Drew Barrymore's height. But like she comes in and you think she's on the front poster. Mm -hmm. So you think Mm -hmm. like, oh, this movie is starring Drew Barrymore. She is huge. She is like it. And then it starts with her. And, you know, she's dead in the first 10 minutes. And she's dead in that. I mean, I actually watched that scene just last night. Literally just watched Drew Barrymore do this. And it's one of my favorite scenes ever. But she's it's so perfect because she really dies in that like most iconic kind of way. And then it's like, oh, nope, Drew Barrymore is not in this anymore. And I absolutely love that fake out. I'm tr- going to try not to make this episode about Scream. <laughs> no, <laughs> here no, we are I mean, so far. It's such a like, I mean, I, that's why I brought it up first. Because Scream is such a great example Um Especially as I as I get into later, you guys might sort of, uh, especially what I was talking about last time I was on the show, I have a lot of feelings about Greek tragedy uh, and <laughs> horror. Uh, but especially, I think a lot of the ways in which horror operates as a genre, especially around social commentary. Uh, and Scream is such a good example of that because it's like such a good parodying uh, of the horror genre, but also like leaning in to sort of make this kind of new branch of horror going forward. Um, and it's so good. Like, it oh. is so good. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to do it again. But that is what I love so much about Scream is that in itself, in its like, a- as a whole, it is its own good horror movie. But it is also playing with tropes of horror movies very intentionally and like, very well you know like they're it's really making some good like it it just it does so many things and it does them all so well and i fucking love this movie (laughs) but certainly like scream queens too and i'm sure you're about to get to this but i want to make sure i it's clear that i also acknowledge this but like jamie lee curtis is is sort of the accepted like original scream queen well, and, actually, yeah. I, I would no? contest okay. that. She's the Please. second. <laughs> oh, Ooh, the second. Okay. <laughs> I would actually contest that Jamie Lee Curtis uh, is sort of like the first known scream queen. I would definitely say um, of like what we know of the horror genre today, like especially her plus John Carpenter, that like whole mm. score. Uh, but to take it back to an earlier mm. filmmaker who was also very known for his psychology uh, and score Janet Lee in Hitchcock's films. Yeah. I was definitely known as one of the most iconic first scream queens, especially in Psycho. Speaking again of that trip out, someone dying early on, uh, who is like sort of thought to be the main character of this film, and then having to go through the aftermath of that again. Uh. Well, and that's Jamie Lee Curtis's mother. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I literally forgot. That. Okay, and I would have forgotten it too, except last night 
I saw that I was scrolling on Twitter and somehow it came up. And so I guess there's a new uh, Halloween movie and Jamie Lee Curtis went to the premiere dressed as her mother in Psycho. That is amazing. (laughs) Oh my gosh. No, now I'm so sad because that would have been such a better segue of just like, (laughs) ah, actually... (laughs) was not it was an earlier her mother instead of yeah like her mom filmmaker. did it first oh god yeah uh oh yeah no i mean god psycho so classic and mm-hmm. i i suppose mm-hmm. with when it comes to jamie lee curtis she's just sort of the like acknowledged like the mm-hmm. quote-unquote mm-hmm. scream queen but yeah definitely i mean psycho would have been i mean the first original and then i'm certain I'm, I'm sure there's like I suppose Exorcist doesn't really have anyone that would kind of qualify as that. I'm just thinking not, of like yeah, classic. Not as yeah. much, yeah, in that sense. But I think the term definitely then started getting like tweaked more. Like I think it gets conflated a lot with like the idea of the final girl, um, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. for those who don't know, the final girl is sort of this like trope and horror of like there's always going to be one girl at the end. So, you know, you're killing off everyone to get to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, I would say many final girls are scream queens. Not all scream queens are final girls because oftentimes mm-hmm. a scream queen is just a great side character. Um, but I definitely think, yeah, there's this interesting turn um, towards like the more emotional, I'd say, in like going to aughts 2010s horror movie um, mm-hmm. going onward. Like, I think my first uh, Scream Queen that, like, deeply freaked me out as a kid is when I saw uh, Naomi Watts in The Ring, Mm -hmm. uh, which I was just like, ah, Uh, not just because it was set where I grew up uh, in Seattle and the (laughs) peninsula. I was very stressed about that. Uh, But because it is this very deep sort of, like, psychological tale uh, about a woman just trying to understand things and like trying to empathize with these like unknown forces that are mm-hmm. impacting her, um, even if they're threatening her life and the lives of her loved ones. Um, okay, so I watched that mm-hmm. earlier this week or last Perfect. week. <laughs> this is my month where I just like take it all in, especially ones that are like nostalgic for me because The Ring, I think when it came out in like 2002, I looked it up. So I was like 14. It was like, Oh my god, it was like the horror movie of my, you know, middle school yeah, years yeah. and it was mm-hmm. so scary and it was it was so much, but I was so curious like I I tweeted out, you know, how much does the ring hold up to people today who don't have those who never had those enormous TVs, who mm. didn't have VHS. Oh, like real, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, know that mm-hmm. feeling of putting a VHS into your, <laughs> like... Or you even know. just, like, the sense of, like, the the TV, like, Black Mirror, uh, which is actually coined first by Arcade Fire. I just like to say, the really? Black Mirror show creators say they named their show after the song by Arcade Fire, which came out in 2005. Canadians six. represent. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm just like legally obligated fire. Uh, on their album Neon Canadians. Bible. I love that song. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, like the this idea of like the TV and like this like big box TV as mm-hmm. this weird sort of like mirror almost into. Well, and the snow of a TV, right? Like the yeah, r- when your mm-hmm. VHS ends mm-hmm. and it's just mm-hmm. snow, like that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> your TV goes blue, and then suddenly your you know home has this like yeah, obnoxious yeah. blue light, or it goes but, back like, to the PS Five. <laughs> like, yeah, your yeah, yeah. yeah. alters like, enters a screensaver. You know, my Apple will start showing me beautiful landscapes, and you're like, okay, but yeah, that idea of like the the 
and the snow and the sound it would make, you know, it might wake you up if you fell asleep yeah. watching TV oh, you're so or right. Yeah. right. All of these mm-hmm. things that are mm-hmm. so tied to that time period in such a fascinating way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so interesting thinking about it now too, because I remember watching it like when it came out, actually my, my sister was the same age as you. So she was just mm. like, watch this horror movie. Yeah. The ring is such an, interesting one the ring was like my only northwest representation and for like three years until twilight came out (laughs) so like those were like my two like big of just like incredible comparison yeah ghosts and vampires i was just like yeah that that checks that's the northwest (laughs) but now it's like i'm having to do all this work again on twilight because of persephone Mm. um because meyer decided to weave the Persephone myth into Midnight Sun. There's some good fruit to mine out of it, uh, especially around like I think Persephone and like young female identity. Actually, let me segue. Let me segue Please. right here. This is a good segue <laughs> to explain how I'm going to talk about Persephone right now because uh, I, I just need to make a statement about Persephone uh, just in general. It's one I've been trying to make a lot in my research over the past couple years because I'm just like everybody. Yes, Persephone is a hot topic. She represents many things. Uh, she, I would encourage everyone, though, who really loves engaging with her uh, and dealing with her, and I say this as someone who had to go through this entire process myself, to really interrogate why. Because <laughs> I think there's, usually when people study Persephone, I'm just like, why? And then I learned so much about that person. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot that people try to inscribe onto Persephone. And it's not just because she has so many different versions of her myth, um, mm-hmm. but because I think she represents an intersection of a lot of different, very difficult things about culture, family, society, ourselves, etc. The identity, mm-hmm. the self versus like community versus like who we are to family versus who we are to partners versus, you know, how we deal in power systems, how we react when different aspects are enacted against us, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think there got a point to me uh, in undergrad, where I was arguing a lot of different things about Persephone uh, in my research. And I was just like, hmm, feel like a lot of this is coming from like a very personal place uh, <laughs> actually and I think uh, I got to a point especially like reading a lot online of different ways people were interpreting Persephone um, I actually got kind of defensive about her especially a lot of the ways in which people were trying to talk about like agency uh, and consent around her myths a lot mm-hmm. um, because there was one aspect that I feel gets overlooked quite a bit about Persephone, which is that in every version of her myth, uh, she does the exact same thing when she's taken to the underworld. Uh, she screams and it's a very intense scream. Uh, it's mm-hmm. actually like one of the more intense sonic events in Greek mythology in general. That's so true. I, I can't think of another example where, you know, because the whole thing about her scream is that it's heard far and wide. Very and like, far and wide. It, like it is, is that it, it's that Hecate hears it. And that's mm-hmm, why mm-hmm. she has the information to give to Demeter, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. It's it's a fascinating scream because it's one that it is noted that like nymphs and mortals like don't hear it for some reason. So there is this like interesting sonic effect. But then it mm-hmm. is heard by uh, Hecate deep in her cave. 
Uh, it's sort of heard by like Helios, but he also just sees everything. He, too, he's so just kind of there yeah. all the time. Yeah. Uh, and then <laughs> the echo of it, uh, because then it sort of goes into how the mountains and like the whole of like the earth just start like resounding and echoing like the sound back. It's the echo that actually travels to uh, Demeter that she hears and then starts running sees Hecate and they're both just like oh god we heard this thing but like we didn't see what happened so like we need to figure we need more information Mm -hmm. and it's that screen that sort of like catapults like the entire uh, action of like that myth the screen is very intense uh and Mm -hmm. so it's actually what I started returning to when I was starting to think about uh screens a bit more in antiquity um yeah because I started looking at Greek tragedy sort of first where I was like, oh, there's all these figures like Io, Cassandra, like these really great big lamenters, wailers that do like a lot, uh, Electra. Mm. But then I was just like, right, uh, Greek tragedy is like playing on so many of these uh, past uh, narratives and these past like older myths and sort of how they like over time impact this larger network. So I started going back to archaic myth and sort of looking at these big utterances. And yeah, Persephone is such an intense one. And like, it's not just in her different myths. Um, It's even connected to a lot of like the religious practices around her too. Mm. So like the Eleusinian mysteries, which were the religious rites for her and her mother Demeter through like Athens and Eleusis, there was this huge procession that would move uh, from Athens to Eleusis Uh, to do the mysteries before folks would come back and it's often talked about how like sonic and like loud this like procession was um to the extent there's even like an anecdote in Herodotus where he talks about how there's an army and like they're coming to Athens to fight but then like they see this like far off cloud they're just sort of like getting bigger and they're like well, what the hell is that? And then they just hear like the procession, like as it's like hmm. going to Eleusis, and they're just like, "Well, that's something to do with the gods. Maybe we should back off." Like, <laughs> yeah, we're out. <laughs> a little creepy. Um, so you do get these sort of like resonances of, especially like sound uh, and like lamenting with uh, Persephone, and a lot of this like dovetails into my own research. I study sound a lot, so I'm always trying to get at the gods from a more sonic point. And Persephone is an interesting one. There's a lot of, like, you can't talk about her rights. Uh, she has a lot of mysterious names and goes through a mm-hmm. bunch of different naming. Actually, as we'll see in Antigone, she has one of her weirder names in that one. Mm. And she also just, like, is known for being the person you're supposed to go to in the underworld for hearing your pleas or, like, to go about, like, a better life or for different things. Like, all these different heroes go to her for different reasons. Heracles is like, ah, yo, cousin, I need to fight this dog. Can I do it? Uh, Psyche goes to her for a box for Venus over in Roman myth. Oh, the apparently like the most intense, empathetic, emotive concert in history was played for her mm. and uh, Hades in the sense of Orpheus coming down yeah. there. Um, so there is like a lot of interesting like sound related stuff and especially like in like sort of the chthonic soundscape that I started getting interested in a lot more because I think you hear a lot of these like strange chthonic sort of otherworldly sounds emerging a lot in Greek tragedy especially when you get like the Furies and like all these different Gorgonic sort of creatures that are supposed to also uh, be represented by the Aulos which is the instrument of the theater and these sort of like 
hissing, almost like bagpipe oboe. It's hard to describe the outlaws. It's like a bagpipe <laughs> oboe, uh, sort of sounding like. So yeah, that sort of was like the push to get me to think about like Persephone as this sort of like, I guess like proto scream queen of like myth. And then like, mm-hmm. once we get into Greek tragedy, we get these like very traditional in these like tragedies that I see as horror narratives, uh, mm-hmm. different types of scream queens coming about. I love that. Just say a few spooky things about Persephone. Oh yeah, nice. please. She's like creepy. And I want people to give her her creepy do a bit more. She's the dread goddess. Yeah, I I'm just like, it. guys, remember that phase? By guys, I mean, just like, you know, folks raised and socialized as women. Uh, like, remember that phase we all went through when we were obsessed with, like, murder and morbid shit? That's what Persephone is. Like, I think that's <laughs> basically my thesis on her. Yeah, I get that. But even, like, the first time she shows up in written sources uh, in Homer's Odyssey, like, it's super creepy. Like, it's when uh, Odysseus is, like, trying to talk to the dead, uh, to talk to Tiresias to get more information. Tiresias, who also pop up later in Antigone, too. Um, and, like, but before he can go, like, Persephone is just, like, sending all of these women, like, from, like, uh, tragedy and, like, myth who have, like, died uh, to Odysseus to just, like... I fucking love that part. ...give their testimony. And it's it's a lot. It's, like, a very ghouly uh, scene. It's very, like, intense. It's wonderful. But also she's just, like, yeah, this sort of, like, interesting sort of background, like, very spectral, almost kind of, like, haunting figure. Um... And she, even, like, in her initial myth, though, uh, this is something that I love touching on with folks more, uh, all of the, like, flowers that she's gathering are all, like, myths of men who died, uh, for the most part, or, like, heroes that, like, have passed. Oh, shit. Like, roses are often associated with Adonis, who falls, Hyacinth yeah. with Hyacinthus, um, the Crocuses are somebody too, right? Crocus, oh yeah, Narcissus, yeah, and then well, Crocus is one. Violets with Athis, yeah. Uh, so there's lots of. Ah. So she's like gathering all of these like traditionally like dying, going to the earth, coming back uh, men right before she herself is about to be taken alive into death, uh, essentially before she comes back. Yeah. So and yeah, there's just like all these ideas of you know going to death, returning from death, you know. She is kind of like the Eleusinian mysteries were one of the bigger, uh, like eschatological, which is all like afterlife oriented religions before like Christianity became a very big one. Like, but yeah, no, Persephone was sort of like the person you uh, would come to terms with uh, as you die, and but also could potentially come back to life in a different way. Um, and so, yeah, she's you know creepy. We yeah. love her. Yeah, the, she's the true crime podcast loving young woman. Yeah, <laughs> and she tends to be like, she's often not a mother, but when she is, mm. <laughs> they tend to be of like really intense things like the Furies uh, in Orphic hymn tradition, or, you know, uh, she's often thought of in different uh, senses of Dionysian ritual to be the mother of Dionysus or Iacchus or Zagreus. Uh, before he's torn apart and then has to be reborn again uh that's all orphic too right Mm -hmm. orphic really like and orphic yeah it's loops around as well yeah interesting because i know like i've you know every time people ask me about zagreus i'm like he's orphic i don't know sorry (laughs) i know he's in the video game hades but i don't know orphic mythology but also like i want to tell people like 
even though I'm going on about like the creepiness, etc., of mm. a, a good deal of horror is like commentary in different way and using different types of emotions to do so. Uh, mm -hmm. So even though I love the Homeric hymn to Demeter and see it as this like maybe much more horror oriented hymn, uh, a lot of the ways in which this horror is accomplished uh, is actually through humor <laughs> in different mm. ways. And like the ways in which humor gets utilized like throughout the myth, like really helps sort of like highlight the differences and disparities between gods and mortals. Uh, one of my favorite episodes in the entire hymn uh, is just when Demeter gets caught trying to turn Demophon uh, into an immortal. And it's like <laughs> three, it's like three or four lines of like how angry she is at like Demophon's mom, Metanira, uh, before she speaks. But like right before she speaks for like half a line, it's like, oh yeah. And then she like tossed the baby to the ground and you're like, what? Like, but then she just goes on this like long tirade of just oh, like, yeah what the hell woman like how dare you question me putting your child in the fire like all this stuff like you're gonna regret <laughs> it like disappears and then it's like metanira is like kneeling there her knees buckle and it's just like she's like so in shock that like she can't even hear like the cries of her child on the ground i mean but imagine having a goddess like you think this is like old woman mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who's been hanging out in your house and then she transforms into a goddess and then some and starts screaming at you for fucking everything up. Like, mm -hmm. but it's yeah, like, that'd be some stressful shit. It's really stressful. But I was just like, I really got caught on the comedy of it all. I'm just like, God, this is so mm -hmm. like intense. But I'm just like, Demeter, the thing you do right before, like dragging this woman is you throw her baby on the ground. Yeah. And, <laughs> but also you, you like, we're putting him in the fire and then you think that this woman is overreacting by it's, saying yeah. like being annoyed that you're <laughs> putting her baby in the fire <laughs> and like, it, it's so great because it's like this hymn is all about grief and uh the relationships between parents and their children um and like how these emotions come about in big and intense ways of I love that episode because it's just I mean the horror of it is so real like if you're Metanira like coming into like you know this room and being like my child is in the fire like of course <laughs> like you know but it turns into this very comedic scene because of like who the gods are their nature um etc uh and so with that note i would like to transition into the ways in which i think this form gets sort of taken to the next level uh in mm -hmm. greek tragedy uh which is <sighs> something that yeah what a beautiful medium what a beautiful genre uh, to express all of these things uh, and often goes between uh, so many different emotions to try to build this sort of huge, I want to say sympathy. But when I say sympathy, mm -hmm. I don't mean in the traditional sense. I don't mean in the stoic uh, cosmic sympathy sense. I mean in a like just genuine like bringing all of the pathos, all of the feelings together, like in this huge thinking of symphony, actually, mm. you know, for me being in symphony growing up, that was always, you know, bring all these voices of different instruments together until we could create this like much richer uh, symphonic narrative. And I feel like that's sort of what Greek tragedy does. It brings all these different types of emotions together to like create this much more heightened narrative uh, mm. with the help of acting and music and things like that. So I would like to talk about the Scream Queen, the iconic woman from Greek tragedy, the emotive, wonderful Antigone. She's so great. <laughs> I love her. I love her maybe too much because it's just a perfect play. 
and I don't say that about many plays because I am a playwright, but I remember reading Antigone for the first time and being like, oh, I need to learn Greek because I need to read this play in Greek. And I remember reading Antigone in Greek for the first time. And I was just like, okay, Sophocles is on to something, but what is it? Actually, I guess I should ask. Have you ever talked about Antigone on the show? Not enough. Yo, all right. I know. I know. So I've told the story of Oedipus and the aftermath and all of that, but it was also really early in the show. Um, and then the closest I've gotten was that I chose because I'm a Euripides girl. Um, I went with uh, the Phoenician women. Oh, I love that version. It's a good one. Yeah, it is. And so it kind of incorporates like everything. And I was able to really put an emphasis on Jocasta because I feel like Antigone gets a lot of pop culture emphasis mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Jocasta deserves some of. Um, but yeah, all to say, no, I haven't gone into the play. I do intend to. I do intend to. It's spectacular yeah Uh, i've read it but not since university so it's mm -hmm, been so mm -hmm. long i need to read it again it's really like i think the thing about antigone um i think this actually helps with like uh what you've already talked about on the show giving it the framing the play antigone is such a like diversion uh from myth but it also like deeply impacts everything that happens ever after it Mm-hmm. Uh, because yeah, Antigone is kind of just like a minor character uh, that Sophocles decided to write a giant play about, and this is sort of like the version that everyone now takes as canon, even though it's like very. We have other versions uh, around yeah. this play from it was very very popular. It was one of the big Theban cycles that everyone loved doing, and Antigone is uh, actually the first Theban play that Sophocles wrote. So chronologically, it actually comes last um, of the other two, uh, Oedipus Rex and Oedipus at Colonus. Uh, but he wrote it first, um, and actually around hmm. the same time that, uh, actually might have been the same year, uh, that Euripides wrote Alcestis. Uh, so I actually Ooh. see a lot of, in- I, there's a lot of very interesting similarities uh, in those plays, especially around like women having to go to uh, the underworld or like off stage and whether or not they get released from that um, mm-hmm. in different ways. Oh, I need to cover Alcestis too. I haven't covered that on the show. Oh, Alcestis writing is it also down. great. Wait, yeah. Call me back for Alcestis. I love Alcestis. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I'll give a brief overview of Antigone for those who don't know. So, uh, Oedipus bangs his mom. We all know this. <laughs> Bad things happen because of it. Finds out. Blinds himself. Jocasta finds out. Hangs herself. It's really sad. And then their sons... Eteocles and Polynices, they are given the throne of Thebes and they are told they have to switch off every year for it. Why is this always a thing? They did the same thing with like uh, Thyestes and Atreus as well. Oh I'm yeah, like, I was going to say, like who who else did they do this mm-hmm, with? But yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, stop, mm-hmm. give them different kingdoms. Like, Yeah, like God. this is not going to go well mm-hmm. at all. Cursed families It never does. No. <laughs> Especially, it's such a We trope. got a couple cursed lines in Greek myth and guess what? It's the two of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so naturally one brother, Ateocles, decides to seize the throne, ban his brother Polynices. Polynices is exiled, raises, uh, goes, marries a foreign princess, raises an army against Thebes, brings them back, and so it ends up being this giant, uh, huge conflict. You might call it a seven against Thebes. Yes. 
Aeschylus <laughs> might call it a seven against Thebes. Uh, of yes, this is known for Thebes had seven gates. Uh, there were seven captains. Polynices leads at seven against Thebes, uh, which really means seven armies. It's intense. Lots of fighting. It's very dramatic. This is like one of the bigger like war things people love uh, other than like the Iliad. And so, of course, it comes down to both the brothers, after all their captains are dead, fighting one-on-one combat against each other. Uh, they both kill each other. And so they're both dead. And it's really horrifying and sad. Meanwhile, their family members are basically what happens later for the events of the Antigone. And this is one that we don't actually know specifically uh, if this is an event that uh, Sophocles is explicitly stating. They reference, like, in part that uh, one of the sons has died. Uh, but we don't know if he is, like, directly using uh, this motif in the way that, like, Aeschylus did. Uh, which mm-hmm. is that the cousin um, of Polynices and Ateocles, uh, named Megaris, who is Creon's son, their uncle Creon. Megaris, it says that he has to be sacrificed. Um, and in many versions, it's Tiresias, actually, who says that, like, if kid has to be sacrificed, then, like, everything will be over. Um, so there is this, like, very sad sort of, like, background, too, of, like, even, like, one of their cousins has to be killed for them to stop fighting. And then, like, you know, they do stop fighting, but, like, they die, too. So there's a lot of intense grief. So Creon, their uncle, as the eldest male uh, relative, then gets the throne that night as they all die. And it's really sad. And he decrees uh, that Eteocles, so like the brother who'd seized the throne, the brother who was, uh, you know, king of Thebes, that he would get a proper burial. Um, but Polynices, the brother who was pushed off the throne and who came back and attacked the city with an army, uh, that his body would be left to rot uh, and just become uh, food for dogs and birds, he actually says. And so <laughs> the... Play Antigone begins just before dawn um, after this horrible night where all the stuff has happened, everyone's died. Um, and it's the sisters of Polynices and Antiochus that come outside of the palace. Antigone and Ismene. And quick note, they have interesting names. Ismene is like very close to the Ismenus, which is like one of the main rivers that flows through Thebes. So she has this very like watery river, like, you know, but part of the people, the city quality. Um, Antigone, uh, her name literally means against birth, uh, or sort of like Ooh. against generation. Um, many have read into this in a lot of different ways. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, I would say Antigone uh, shares quite a bit with Persephone in that way, in that a lot of uh, attention has been paid to her through reception, through scholarship, through history, through philosophy, through psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Um And I think it often reveals a lot more about people who are studying her than perhaps the play itself. Um, Mm. And I would say that that's actually a viewpoint that's much wider accepted about Antigone. Um, She's kind of known as being like the one everyone does to death because there's so much to talk about with her because it is such an intense and involved play. That's why I chose to go with the Phoenician women instead mm-hmm, also mm-hmm. because it kind of combines seven against Thebes with Antigone in an interesting way but yeah I mean it's one of those things right she is so she's so overdone but that doesn't make her less interesting 
Not at all. Yeah. And it's especially yeah. like this version that is so overdone and even actually seemed to impact even some of our own versions that we have of, of the play mm. Seven Against Thebes specifically. It's thought that the ending of it uh, is actually spurious or was rewritten at a later point mm. to help like make the play like a transition into like the Antigone mm. better because uh, there is kind of like this random scene where Antigone just like pops up at the end she's like well I'm gonna bury them no matter what my like uncle says and like <laughs> like makes it known and like that's like the end of the play and you're like what like where did that come from interesting yeah it's, it is this very interesting um, impact that Sophocles has had um, through this character we get these two sisters um, who I will actually argue both are scream queens. Um, and people might be surprised I would say that about Ismene. But people also might be surprised that I would say that about Antigone. So I'll dive <laughs> in after I get through the plots. Basically, Antigone is just like, yo, sis, did you hear about Creon? This is whack. Like, our brothers both need to be buried. This is messed up. Um, and Ismene is pretty much just like, I agree. But like, what? we have no power like he's the king now we just have to do this it sucks i'm sorry and antigone's like i'm gonna do it anyway love you bye and many's like damn that is foolish but also love you bye i actually really like the way sophocles read sisters i think he either had two sisters or just had like two sisters around that he observed a lot so there's like mm -hmm. a lot in their back and forth um, but also in his Elector, too, that I'm just like, you know way too much about how sisters talk to each other. I'm a little disturbed. Um, <laughs> then uh, sort of like the day breaks and the chorus of this play um, is all old men. I mean, it's all the old men of the city. Um, and they're very sort of uh, empathetic to their new leader, Creon, because they're just like, wow yesterday was wild like we just went through war we're really stressed like we're really happy like we have a leader um who can sort of bring us through a lot and creon is sort of one of those like big figures from greek tragedy he's known for being a lot um a lot of people compare him to pentheus of the bacchae because i think they go through a lot of uh similar experiences especially around wanting to imprison women uh, in different ways for different reasons <laughs> But Creon is also, I think, one of the most uh, impressive characters from Greek tragedy. Um, and it's, I always have to, like, tell people, he's on stage for over two-thirds of the play. And he has the wow. majority of the dialogue. Uh, for contrast, Antigone is on stage for less than a third of the play and has, like, not nearly as much dialogue as he does that's very Iphigenia at Alice mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yes yeah. oh very very Iphigenia at Alice I would agree um and, and a lot of people even ask like why isn't this name Creon <laughs> like this, it's kind yeah. of the show um huh. and hopefully I will answer that uh with a horror <laughs> lens but he's very I think there tends to be a lot of like is Creon right? Is Antigone right? Like in these like different things I'm like the two people going through intense emotional responses and I think that is what we first have to recognize because uh, they say it quite a bit but I would also like to point out Creon has an eerie similarity I would say with a lot of uh, more contemporary American politicians in very different ways um <laughs> like one of his like earliest lines is he's just like these are the laws like by which like I'm going to make Thebes great again <laughs> like pretty much and you're just like oh oh buddy buddy Ooh. um and actually, even uh, last summer, I as things were popping off, well, 
uh, in summer of 2020, I actually wrote like a long piece critiquing uh, here in New York, uh, Bill de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo. Cause I was just like, you guys are, this is very Creon-esque uh, what is <laughs> happening in uh, the city and state right now. And especially how you guys tend to be uh, ignoring a lot of the factors. And I think in that sense, that's where I sort of see Creon as a character. He's deeply empathetic but he ignores a lot of very basic things that are happening in the city, uh, all because he wants to have this very intense power over like defining bodies. And the definition of bodies is sort of all of what the Antigone is about, uh, because Creon is trying to be like, ah, this dead body is worthy of such treatment. This dead body is worthy of X treatment. Um, and you have his niece, Antigone, basically saying the entire time, I disagree. Like, actually, no, they're both worthy of equal treatment because like they are corpses um, and they go through so many different levels, basically fighting this point because Creon's just like, all right, here are my rules. I'm the leader. This is what's going to happen. What happens immediately? Antigone buries her brother or like tries to at least like putting stuff mm-hmm. around him before she is taken away by guards to be interrogated about this thing. And the entire play is them arguing about this fact, um, but also how entangled their relationships are with each other and what is like worth and meaning uh, during these times. Because Antigone is not only his niece, she's also uh, going to be the person who's supposed to carry forth his line because she's actually engaged to his oh, son, Paimon. Right. Yeah. yeah, so he has like a lot of anxiety of just like, ah, like my son, like, my offspring cannot come from like this evil woman. Like I have to kill her. Uh, he gets very intense. He even threatens his many at one point too, because he's just like, well, Antigone's not having the response I want. Let's bring out his many. Cause she's going to have this like, you know, intense, she's going to heighten the terror of the scene because Antigone is giving him nothing. Um, and it's actually in the scene where uh, Creon brings his many out of the palace uh, to basically like harass her in front of Antigone, that I argue is why Ismene is such a powerful screen queen uh, in the play because she really does like heighten the terror, but she also makes the stakes clear throughout it. Like she tries to ally herself with her sister, and her sister's like, "No, like we should not have two people punished for like the one thing I'm doing." Also, you didn't even want to do it. This doesn't make sense. But at the same time, Ismene uh, then like directly poses all of the questions to Creon of just like, are you going to kill your wife's like fiance? Are you going to make him like deal with all these things? And Creon has some of his worst lines in the play in response to Ismene. Like when she's just like, you're going to get rid of your like son's wife. He's just like, there are other furrows for his plow. And you're like, God damn. <laughs> yeah, no, he gets like really intense, like very misogynistic, like. He talks about like how like they both need to go back into the house so that like they can return to being women because he like calls them animals while they're out there and stuff like that. Like he gets very, very nasty like once Ismene comes out. Um, and so that's where I argue she has such an intense like uh, emotional push because she also is the one person to basically like break through Antigone's like anger and her like rhetoric. Uh, and actually make Antigone freak out and be like, no, you will not die with me. Absolutely not. Like, I will fight you <laughs> Like, if you try to do that because you need to live. I'm going to die. Like, no, no. And then we get Hymon, uh, Creon's son, coming out and just being like, dad, 
I think you're losing it. Like, he's just like, I'm stressed. Like, I just want you to have good judgment. I really don't think you have good judgment right now because the city is on Antigone's side. And like, I think we should actually listen to this. Um, and Creon loses it, loses it against his son. Um, and in fact, it's like, I'm going to kill Antigone right here in front of you to teach you a lesson. Uh, and Hymon's like, no, absolutely not. Bye. I'm gonna leave. Like, no, like, I actually don't have power over this. Like, peace out i'm leaving uh and it's actually the point where like hymon physically removes himself from the stage um and it expresses this in a way that like creon's been able to control everyone else on the stage at this point that creon's just like i can't kill her like i have to like literally imprison her like put her in a tomb like just go put her on the edges of town exile put her in a hole um but he very specifically notes that he is going to leave food uh, there for her, which was part of actually um, like the ancient uh, custom around uh, imprisonment is that you really needed to like leave food for like a person who's imprisoned. Otherwise, like uh, they probably would not get fed. Um, this is actually noted in some of the anecdotes about the Athenian prison, which was mm. at the contemporary time of Sophocles of like, you really needed like family members or like friends who were going to feed you uh, if you were in prison. Um, but he says like, I'm going to leave like enough food so that like the city won't be stained by like the disgrace of us just like leaving a girl in the ground. And so he like sends her off and she actually like laments herself. Uh, she like sings herself to her prison grave. Um, mm. And like, he hates that too. He's just like, stop stop wait run faster he's like go like people are gonna keep singing like until you know because she doesn't want to actually go to prison um and it's only finally when she's in prison that tiresias that old man uh comes and he's just like hey so uh there's a plague by the way in the city because you left a body out uh and it's bad so we need to do something about this and creon literally still is just like no i don't care if zeus's eagle comes and grabs like uh, polynesius's body like we are not burying it none of this is happening you're just a greedy old man who's just like convinced from gold from the east clearly and it's like he goes off the deep end and tiresias is just like you know what no i don't know screw you Here's a goddamn prophecy. Before the night is up, you're going to have to exchange a corpse for a corpse and probably your whole house is going to die. Bye. I am so done with you. And it's only at that point that Creon's like, hey, Chorus. The Chorus is like, yeah? And he's like, so uh, Tiresias has never really been wrong uh, about prophecies. And the Chorus is like, yeah. Nah, like since we were kids, he's never been wrong. And <laughs> he's really like, good. Yeah. And Creon's like, shit. Okay, maybe, uh, maybe I should go release her. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, 
during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. And it is, of course, at this moment where Creon realizes that he's been in the wrong and must write things that it is too late and we cannot. A messenger comes to tell the chorus uh, that Antigone is dead. Hymon is also dead uh, because when Creon got to uh, the tomb after he did make sure to bury Polynices on his way there, they do know. Uh, he gets to the tomb and he hears just like wailing, like coming from inside. And he's just like, oh my God, that sounds like my son. Uh, he goes in and he sees Hymon basically like, hanging on to Antigone who hung herself uh, with her own like linen uh, in the cave prison tomb. It has a few different names. So I'm always like cave, prison tomb, bed chamber. <laughs> it's all these things. And he's just like, oh, God. He's like, wow, this is bad. And he's also like, don't hug a corpse. Like, son, come on. Like, ah. And Hymon, of course, like, is beyond. He literally says he's, like, beyond words. Like, there's just an energy in his eye. Uh, and he tries to kill his dad, fails, and then stabs himself. Because he's just gone and done. Um, and so the messenger is telling Chorus this. Meanwhile, 
Eurydice, who is Creon's wife, different Eurydice, there are a few Eurydices Mm -hmm. uh, in myth, comes out and she's just like, hi, she hasn't made any appearance. She has the shortest, like, speech in any, in all of Greek tragedy. It's only six lines. She's just like, hi, I just came out to, like, check the doors. Like, what, what's going on? I feel like I heard something about my son. And the messenger's like, yo, he's dead. This is stressful, etc. And she says nothing and goes inside. Of course, it's like, oh no, is she okay? <laughs> like, ah, and the messenger's like, let me go check on her. And then like Creon comes in, he's singing, he's lamenting, he's carrying Hymon's dead body. He's just like, I'm a lifeless corpse. This is terrible. Oh my God, everything terrible has happened. And then the messenger comes out from the house and is like, your wife just hung herself too. Like she's dead. Actually, I think she did stab herself. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. Well, it's actually important to know because hanging versus stabbing is actually means a lot uh, based on uh, what your female role in society is in Greek tragedy. Mm. Um, so actually, I think it is she does stab herself and that is noteworthy. Um, right. Yeah. Mothers tend to hang themselves. Young girls tend to be sacrificed and or uh, stabbed. And so Creon has lost his whole family he has no way of having more kids like his wife's dead too it's terrible um and actually this is the point that i like is that uh in a lot of antigone's actions and explicitly when it comes to her sister antigone has actually finangled things so that ismene is essentially the final girl of the play Mm -hmm. she just never comes back after she's sent back in the house but it's like she Mm -hmm. technically is like alive like narratively speaking so um despite like everything that has happened like and all this death and stuff like there is still ismene uh who has survived in different ways so that was a very long uh sort of overview (laughs) of antigone but uh this play which i love so much uh and i originally first got interested in it during my master's because I was writing a a paper on Antigone and imprisonment Uh, because I thought it was such an interesting example from myth of like a gal who's imprisoned uh, for like basically like what she's saying versus like I'm scared you're gonna have this baby Uh, and so I was like this is so fascinating I was like I need to learn more about like imprisonment in antiquity uh, which took me on a long spiral. Uh, I actually learned we have no accounts of like any women in prisons uh, from antiquity, mm-hmm. like from their own point of view, especially. Like there's a few mm-hmm. anecdotes. We know that women were in prison, but we just don't get a whole lot of like actual historical stories about it. And almost mm-hmm. exclusively, they tend to come from myth. Um, and so I was like really interested in sort of like these uh, ideas of sort of like binding and unbinding um and a lot of this was because i wrote my thesis under the influence of marcus fulch at columbia who's writing a uh book right now on uh imprisonment in antiquity and a lot of what he notes especially from motifs around goddesses bound in archaic myth Mm. is that the binding and unbinding um, of a goddess tends to signal uh or even different figures tends to signal uh like regime change uh in Mm. myth and so like we see this a lot in uh the theogony with like you know Gaia is being bound like her like children are being shoved into her and like they're not being able to be released when Zeus releases you know the giants and the hundred hand uh folk like you have this regime change of Zeus taking over um etc but like Mm -hmm. even uh like uh 
also like Zeus like with Kronos and like you know releasing all of his siblings from Kronos's stomach like you see this release from this like idea of imprisonment and regime change coming about um Athena bursting through Zeus's head <laughs> you know to like as like a weird sort of like uh middle ground between her and Matus uh you see this like again like shift in different types of uh regime change that often comes with binding uh, and unbinding Homeric him to Demeter uh we see one of the biggest regime changes uh and things happening with the binding and unbinding of Persephone um and so I bring all of this up to talk about the fact that like Antigone is so fascinating because like she's not able to be unbound <laughs> Like, Creon isn't able to release her and then, like, a change in regime happens. In fact, it's something, like, much, much more kind of inverted uh, happens away from that. And I became obsessed with this turn and trying to sort of think through why I found it so fascinating. I think it's because Creon is such an intense uh, presence on that stage. Um, even my thesis, I think I like referred to him as like a stage manager because he keeps just like trying to organize everything that is happening from it, um, from an intense physical standpoint too. Um, like he talks about things very, very, very physically. Um, and there is such like a physical somatic, like very bodied, uh, presence that he brings, uh, to the stage, but also trying to like control the bodily functions of other folks as well who can talk and who can't talk. Uh, who can have sex with who and who can't. Um, and then in the end, when he imprisons Antigone, like he is really trying to control her mouth in a very specific way of just like, you will eat this um, thing while I imprison you. Um, so I started thinking about, because Antigone can't have like a strong physical in the traditional impact, she doesn't have a strong physical presence throughout the play. I started thinking more, I guess, around along the lines of like, her psychological presence um but less I think in the terms of like modern psychology more thinking through like the psyche in the more ancient sense the suke the like spirit the the soul in other senses um but also just sort of thinking about uh these ideas of like soul and spirit because they are very like connected with uh especially ancient eschatological myths especially with Persephone which like you know there's a lot of Chthonic influence in the Antigone and the Chthonic gods mm -hmm. and honoring them and wanting to uh, hold their honor. Even just like being locked away in a cave as the the sort of main point feels very Chthonic. I mean, yeah. somewhat is, but yeah. No, absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. And it's like, there's so much like back and forth between her and Creon where she's always defining like the gods, like especially like the gods below as like the main gods that she's like really clued into and like talking mm. about. Uh, she's a very Chthonic uh, figure, very into like Chthonic mm. myth. Actually, I think there's, if anyone wants to do a paper on Antigone and Orphism, <laughs> that should probably be explored Ooh. more. I'm gonna just throw that out there because I'm too late. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also just want to say, because I'm not sure how much I've emphasized what the word chthonic means, even though Ooh, I yeah. love it so much, but just chthonic refers to gods of the underworld, because chthonic means like of the earth, to my listeners, yeah. Chthonos, yeah. All that good mm. earthy stuff. So yeah, I started thinking of this more sort of like spirity, like presence Antigone tends to have through it, uh, because one of the like interesting things is like Creon does go through this like very intense reversal at the end where he just when he decides to release her um and in fact at that moment starts spouting a lot of the similar rhetoric uh that antigone mm. was through the same um 
through the same actual philosophical lens. Uh, mm-hmm. If anyone wants to look this up and wants uh, more information about this, uh, Antigone and Creon actually go along the lines to get really nerdy for a second. Uh, of the pre-Socratic versus sophistic debates around the concepts of nomos, which are laws, and phusis, which are nature. And Megan Arp wrote an excellent dissertation uh, going through all the different ways in which this philosophical debate plays out across uh, throughout the play. Basically, there's like team pre-Socratics, which is like Antigone, Tiresias, Hymon, uh, which are all about how these ideas of laws and nature are supposed to be interconnected, always sort of feeding into each other. One is supposed to inform the other. Whereas Creon seems to be uh, sort of like captain of team Sophis, which also like the guard is Mene um, and the chorus at times, though the chorus goes through the arc as well. And mm. Sophis thought that uh, Nomos laws were supposed to actually like control nature and like order it and sort of like uh, subjugate it, I guess, in different ways. And so the chorus really like emphasizes this in their first Stasimon, which is like one of the most famous songs from Greek tragedy. It's called mm. the Ode to Man because they're just like, they talk about pola uh, tadena. Uh, many are the Dana, which is such a wild word. It means both like wondrous and horrifying. Uh, it's actually mm. the root of a dinosaur uh, and of all things. And so they say like, you know, Dana are like the things that man can do. Uh, so it's like wondrous, but also like horrifying, <laughs> like all the yeah. things men can accomplish. And so you see after um, Creon decides to release Antigone, he has this switch where suddenly he starts defining these terms like in this very pre-Socratic sense. And you're like, oh my God, wait, you pop sides in the philosophical debate. What's happening? Um, and his last line actually is about like nomos. He's just like, I think I should live by like this definition of laws that I've been fighting against this whole time. Because the whole mm-hmm. time he's like, I should define laws. I'm the ruler. And Antigone's like, no, certain laws like only the gods can define, especially around burial. Mm-hmm. And it's in that switch that he does that I actually started thinking about Antigone's impact more. And so uh, I was wondering if there was a way in which she was actually haunting uh, Creon in a very mm-hmm. specific way. Because it's as he comes to this realization and decides to um, to go free her, uh, like, thematic like in the play is like events that is when she dies uh mm-hmm. and she has like died and so i wonder almost like if there's a sense of uh these sort of ideas all these things that she'd been trying to warm to try to have these sort of premonitions about during her life through her death she's actually able to then finally express them through creon <laughs> uh actually reacting mm. through all these things um and so i uh became very obsessed with the idea of um, her prison being actually um, a stoma. So stoma in Greek uh, is the word for mouth. Um, it's actually where we get stomach from, which is like the bottom mm-hmm. of like where we put things for our mouth. Mm-hmm. But uh, stoma is also a word that's often used for just doorways, gateways, other things of that nature. Um, and uh women it was thought uh had two stomas uh in a sense thank you julia sisa and your book greek virginity uh for going into depth about that excellent book highly recommend uh mm. where it was thought that yeah uh women had their second stoma of uh their reproductive organs uh, and it was 
like wow ancient gynecology is fascinating they thought so many yeah no it's wild (laughs) so basically like they thought that like yeah like the your like lower mouth was like also for like eating in different ways um and that like you know there were like different types of like seals that it had and it was actually thought that like virginity was like an imperfect seal uh because like blood could still escape through menstruation so they're just like being pregnant it's perfect nothing is coming out of there like it's (laughs) yeah so there i went through a lot of like ideas of just like because i was like right women in prison I'm just like right what did they think about women I was like I had to go through all these layers and so uh, but it was really thought of these ideas that um yeah these different types of mouths uh, they thought babies ate menstrual blood so like that's like why it had to stay up there was like it's like nourishment for like the baby to grow um and things lovely I know yeah but then I was like wait vampire babies exactly but then I was like this is kind of like horrifying and I was like wait 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 okay wait wait this is where things get weird i won't lie uh like i was just like okay okay if we like think if we think in different ways of like this prison that antigone's in as this sort of like stoma because it's also like creon has been trying to control antigone's stoma this entire like time both from like her mouth of like what she's saying because he's like stop speaking um, but then also like her reproductive system because it's like supposed to you know engender his and then he's like no absolutely not um and so i i found it interesting that he sort of like put her in this like prison and like in a way of giving her food that would like help like control like her mouth of just like haha i do have power over you um in this mm. sense and it was actually on the food note that i came back to because i was like what an interesting like you know persephone parallel we do have here Mm, because it's like mm -hmm. if she does eat the food like she does sort of accept his power his regime um all these things uh and so instead she does hang herself but like i do think it's interesting to note that one she is the only yes the only non-mother from greek tragedy to hang Mm -hmm. herself it is really a strong maternal motif um, but mm-hmm. also her method of killing herself is literally closing up her throat and mouth for good uh, so that mm-hmm. nothing can actually go or like penetrate. Um, and like, I mean, it closes up her second stoma, like one might argue for good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I started thinking through like these gynecological metaphors around like haunting and like what her death was sort of doing in this way. Cause I was trying to picture the image of it of like a cave and like, her just hanging and I was like I guess that does remind me in ways of like a mouth with like the uvula uh, in like the back hanging Hmm. and then you do have this like very intense sort of like outpouring of emotion that comes from uh this prison in different ways like you know you hear first like Hymon yelling from it and like sort of like echoing out this lamentation as he then is like holding on to like his wife or not wife mm-hmm. uh, and then like you know you get violence as he tries to kill his father uh but then like he also kills himself so you get this like creon has been trying to like control all of these like stomas to like a sense that now this like mouth womb like prison one is like almost in a way screaming at him quite literally <laughs> like it has turned into a mouth and now it is like undoing everything about like his own like his stoma and his like reproductive stoma his son dies his wife dies uh there is like this outpouring of blood 
So I thought of it in two ways where I was just like, ah, like in one sense, it's like this stoma is like screaming. I'm like, in another, maybe more morbid sense that I ended up cutting from my thesis because uh, I felt kind of bad about it was I was just like, it, I mean, Antigone's name against birth. It's almost right. like she's sort of like miscarrying like her line, like in a way of just sort of being like, we got to get this all out. Like Oedipus is dead. Jocasta is dead. Like she names her whole family before she goes to die. Um, and it's almost like she's sort of like wiping the slate clean of this like very intense, messy family and sort of like aborting like the whole line um, in a sense, mm-hmm. um, except for his many who mm-hmm. walks away somehow the and last stays. girl yeah the last girl doesn't yeah. um and so yeah a lot of uh, when I was writing my thesis I was very fascinated with this idea of Creon the entire time throughout the play trying to sort of physically control everything um and like so much of what angers him is that he can't really get to like Antigone's psyche and change her mind about like what she's saying what she's doing um and so I think there are or at least what I wanted to argue is that there's this interesting reversal in the end where it's like, yeah, it's because like her psyche was then able to overtake him and then change the Uh entire physical world around. And so I kept going back to like ghosts because I'm just like, yeah, maybe she just starts haunting him. Like maybe she's just haunting him. I like, yeah. Um, And so this was all like a big, long uh, part of like my thesis. I ended up cutting just to focus more intensely on prisons because I was like, I, I have to be a philologist. Like, I was like, I have to, like, focus just on the Greek and not get so fanciful. Um, but now that I'm not uh, in an institution anymore and just doing stuff on my own, I was like, hey, wait, that was actually a fun concept. Um, so actually, uh, in the week leading up to Halloween, uh, I've actually broken up my master's thesis into seven different sections uh, that will hopefully be really fun. Uh, to just sort of like explain this uh, sort of entire saga of Antigone and haunting that I see throughout mm-hmm. the play uh, in different ways. Like there's one section to look at the female body. There will be one that goes into like philosophy and the history of the prisons to get more like context. There's a whole section on music um, and going through stuff. And one section is, you know, uh, Persephone, the proto <laughs> scream queen mm-hmm. of archaic myth and how Persephone is the last goddess that uh, Antigone invokes before she goes down Ooh. to the underworld. And specifically, uh, Fair Fossa is the version. Oh, yeah. The fifth century, there are so many different variants of Persephone. Oh, I, it's wild. Oh, yeah, I know, yeah. yeah. Yes, Fair Sephasa, um, that she's going down, you know, to live with the dead, to be living amongst the dead, which is something that Persephone also did, <laughs> had to go be living mm-hmm. amongst the dead. And right after she has this long speech sort of invoking it, the chorus even says, like, oh, God, like, you know, the same, like, windy, like, you know, blowing, like, spirits, suke, like, are, like, possessing, like, this girl. So you're like, what? <laughs> so I was like, possessing, all right. We're, we're about to go into yes. a haunting. It's happening. She's haunted. Mm-hmm. She's possessed. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, and another... <laughs> okay, this is goofy and silly. And, like, I need to say that before I make this point. And um, so, as I uh, mentioned earlier, you know, part of, like, Persephone's roles, like, she's also seen as, like... Um, 
the mother often of uh, Yacus as a part of the Eleusinian mysteries. Um, sometimes this plays interesting roles when it comes to uh, how Yacus shows up in uh, choral lyrics, especially around Thebes. So in uh, Stasmon Five, the as right, which is right after um, Creon is like, "I'm gonna go release her." Okay, bye. Uh, the chorus sings this like kind of like solemn, but like also kind of like hopeful, triumphant song to Dionysus and they're just like yo a Theban boy like plague is coming help us like you got this Dionysus we're gonna call you down you're gonna be great um and I only bring this up is because like they talk about uh like you know the different things he's known for including rapes so this is a goofy point and I do keep <laughs> needing to say that but your uvula uh in the back of your throat which is for those who don't know it's just the latin word for little grape Oh. And so I was actually, when I was originally writing this, I was trying to figure out what the, um, if there is like a Greek equivalent, I guess it is the same. Yeah. You just like, it's the same, it, or they also call it like little grape. It's the sophule, uh, like the grape uh, also. And so huh. they do talk about like the sophule, like in the song right before they're like, and she's hung. And I'm like, like a little grape, like a uvula. Um, yeah. That is a goofier <laughs> point, but I just wanted to make the further connection um but also what's well, interesting yeah Dionysus is such a god of like you know mouths drinking as well that I just feel like there's a lot of mouthiness uh in this yeah. play that I loved to explore and ghosts and it's just creepy and I love it it is and it's I mean it's very interesting in that way and yeah what I was thinking kind of as soon as he started mentioning the haunting part and I, I've not thought this all the way through but I'm gonna mention it to to bring it full circle is I'm getting real Scream 3 vibes mm. where they introduce a ghost for no reason and suddenly mm -hmm. you're dealing with some like real haunting stuff that doesn't really get resolved or make a lot of sense and I love it, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And it's very like, you know, suddenly her mother starts haunting her to kind of like tell her something mm -hmm. about the ultimate story and the ultimate, you know, who who is behind Ghostface in that one. Yes. And I will say ghosts are a motif. Uh, on the attic stage like people like that mm -hmm. oh the ghost of agamemnon uh oh. impacting yeah orestes and electra and trying to you know drive them to murder their mother is like one of the biggest uh ones that gets brought up a lot but there is yeah this like sense of like spirits um and like things coming back from the past and haunting um uh, but also mm -hmm. In uh, Antigone's like obsession with the Chthonic gods throughout the play, there are just so many lines too about like Creon just being like, "Well, because you love like what's underground, like it's time for you to go live underground and like do all these things." Um, and then mm -hmm. the end, you know, everyone keeps talking about how Creon is like a living corpse now. So there is a lot of these like mm. ideas of like reanimation, dead being where they're not supposed to be versus the alive being where they're not supposed to be. Cause it's like you have an unburied dead body and you're burying an alive body. So yeah, lots of good spooky uh, stuff to talk about. Um, would also mm -hmm. be interested if anyone had a, like zombie analysis uh in some of uh, greek tragedy too i think there's definitely lots of room for that lots of blood drinking i think you know vampire lenses oh, are always yeah. appreciated um yeah the the blood drinking scene 
in the Odyssey. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like when he does that whole thing to get all the shades to come in and they're all, they can't talk to him until they've drank the blood. And ooh, yeah. I love it. See? Spooky classics. <sighs> love the spooky classics. Oh my gosh. That's why I try to do spooky season every year, which you've helped me with this year because I came from a holiday and was like, what am I going to do? <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, there's so much, like, I will definitely say Cassandra's big, like, standout number Mm. in Agamemnon was, like, the first thing that got me thinking about this way back in undergrad, Mm because that's so intense, and, like, yeah, also these ideas of, like, saying things plainly, and, like, people around you not being able to understand, I feel like is such an impactful theme in Greek tragedy that women go through a lot, specifically in different ways. Uh, very literal it's very mm-hmm. it's very horror too yeah. the idea of cassandra right mm-hmm. like of mm-hmm. you know the number of horror movies where specifically often women you know recognize that there's an issue mm-hmm. and no one believes them or yeah. gaslight gaslights them or so many different things yeah i mean the scream 2 plays with that very specifically yeah. by having to have campbell appear as cassandra and like this fascinating like completely invented version that seems to be a combination of so many plays Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i love it it's so good (laughs) yeah i feel like that's also such a um why i always push back so hard i think uh people in positions of power often have a tendency to identify a lot with creon and they're just like Mm. but also like people are being upstarts Uh, and i always have to bring up a few different points one creon literally has the power he's the mm-hmm. king like i'm just like yeah. guys like you really are talking about these two like the power differential is the same and i'm like and yet especially when i hear professors talk about it they tend to equate students and teachers so you know i can see why mm-hmm. they might do that but uh two actually the biggest point that i would like to bring up and it's one that i think no one has actually paid that much attention to but i think after this past year people really might creon starts a plague like there's a pandemic yeah. that actively affects his <laughs> and causes well, and it's things. interesting too because like that's a that's a a full like an intentional mirroring of the plague that takes place in Oedipus mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that you know like is the whole crux of that as well. Like it, what it should do is be like an obvious reminder to Creon that like, hey, the last time this happened, like you were there, you watched, like, there was a pretty big problem, and, you know, and it wasn't, it was, like, 100% Oedipus's fault, and it's it's meant to kind of really mirror that, but then also Creon sort of is oblivious to it in a different way, yeah. or in a, the same way as Oedipus, rather. And actually, that's where, like, I, like, actually weirdly love Creon as a character, is I'm, like, he's so obvious, like, taking on this, mm-hmm. like, this, like, in the same way that, like, Antigone is, like, haunted by like her generational curse like the families he's from he's doing like the same i'm like you're jocasta's brother like you know you go through like a lot of the similar things like that are happening but no he like absolutely goes through like all this stuff that oedipus goes through and then the chorus as he's going through it are just like damn we guess Antigone's just like her dad. And it's like so ironic because you're like, no, it's yeah. Creon. Uh, yeah, like it's, so it's obviously Creon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, but that's really Also the events of the play are literally just him not listening. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't listen to Antigone. He doesn't listen to his son. Mm-hmm. And it, like he doesn't even listen to Tiresias. It's really just like, it's finally when the chorus is like, okay, maybe, damn. 
maybe this yeah. is like the time it's like he proves himself over the course of the play like what the fact that he is a bad leader by his actions mm-hmm. throughout it but also like he's the thing that I also remind people is because they're like, well, like it's his authority. Like he can't have it challenged the way Antigone's challenging it. I'm like, he's been king for 12 hours. And his first well, ruling was to like <laughs> literally go against Greek custom. Like, I'm just like, uh, that's big. Like, yeah. yeah like it's, you know, he's, he's not a longstanding. He's not, yeah. he hasn't proven himself. Like there's so many things. And then yeah. like his reasoning for it, like, before you know, he figures out Antigone is doing stuff he's just like well these are the laws by which I need to make Thebes great again so we're doing yeah. it and I'm like Oof. guys <laughs> this isn't great this yeah. ain't great <laughs> um, no much like something else yeah. and so actually yeah. I think it's for that reason uh, throughout the play I think Sophocles like I think everyone's focused historically on like whether or not Antigone is right or wrong, like whether the audience would have seen her as right or wrong. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, I actually think that's immaterial. I think Sophocles goes out of his way to illustrate how wrong Creon is and how mm-hmm. much it makes him a bad leader. He spends the majority of the play trying to do that. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. And it doesn't necessarily mean Antigone is inherently right. It just means the no. point is that Creon, Creon is, wrong. is wrong. Like that, yeah. yeah. I think that is the point of Antigone is that Creon mm-hmm. is wrong. And that's why she's such a great character. Yeah. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. if Creon had more ambiguity to his character, then like Antigone would be like a much more, like I think the play would be a lot more muddled. But like actually mm-hmm. I think it's in how clear, how wrong Sophocles goes out of his way to like every single episode since he steps on stage to be like, he's wrong he's wrong he's wrong mm-hmm. um that makes antigone so intense and impactful mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but you know scholars have been arguing about this play for millennia and we probably will keep doing so i mean isn't that the fun of all great tragedy though you know everyone's got their different views on each one and and then i mean it, i love studying greek tragedy because i, I also have an english degree like i did a mm-hmm. double major mm-hmm. and i feel like i connect to that part of it where it's a little more it's a little easier to dive in and find your parts your pieces what you identify with what you connect like yeah the arguments you can make versus what are necessarily the arguments that sophocles was trying to make or history or what have you you know thank you so much for doing this oh my god scream queens that's so utterly fascinating and Mm -hmm. i love the spooky shit so much yeah i was like right lots of ones in greek tragedy i think um other ones in myth that are just like great Mm -hmm. like uh, oh I didn't even bring this up. God damn it. All of these gals, uh, Antigone, Persephone, um, Cassandra in different times too. Uh, Io, though that's an interesting one since she turns into a cow. Mm. All the rest of these gals mm. often get compared to birds too, like in mm. how they like shriek, how they lament, how they mourn uh, their use. And it's actually in some other like bird myths too that we got some scream queens. Procne and Philomela. Absolutely. Two of the oh. better scream queens uh, yeah. that also get referenced. Um, even though our main myth of them comes from Ovid, uh, actually in mm. a lot of choral lyric from uh, Euripides mm. specifically, they mm. tend to show up and just sort of make themselves that myth known. Um, Mm-hmm. I think Heracles is the main one I'm thinking of where the chorus is just like, oh God, parents killing their kids. It's bad because Heracles yeah. kills his kids. And we're like, Edith, yeah. oh no. Oh no. I also just think 
that especially how much horror deals with all these like big intense aspects of social cultural stuff um but also like plays with humor plays with aesthetics plays with like you know the drama uh, of it all with tropes in these like really intense ways um that's just why i think it's a really really great lens uh to look at greek tragedy in and uh before i pop off i do want to uh take note uh, in more recent years uh quite a few uh horror films have actually been taking off of or directly referencing greek tragedies um yeah. i first uh noticed this in hereditary uh the sun yeah. in hereditary which has a great scream queen tony collette it's fina- it's fascinating everyone go watch um in the sun's high school class they're reading greek tragedies uh, and the first one they talk about is trachinii by sophocles um and the second one they talk about is actually Iphigenia and Alice. Um, and it sort of like highlights mm-hmm. the fact that like a lot of the kids in this uh, film get sacrificed. Um, but on the note of Iphigenia and Alice, uh, there was actually a horror film based off it uh, by Greek director Yoros Lanthimos, Killing of a Sacred Deer, uh, which is... I was just going to say. Yeah, definitely a loose... I wasn't sure if that was counted as a horror, but that's the one I always think Oh, I of. count yeah. it, yeah. Um, I haven't seen it, so... It's very, it's very unsettling. Yeah, it's definitely. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of the trailer, and I remember thinking that it looked unsettling. Yeah, one of my, why I usually don't watch. Definitely it. one of my favorite Clytemnestras, uh, Nicole Kidman playing, mm. but uh, it's it's very unsettling. Um, mm-hmm. But also, just lots of uh, more recent uh, horror films have taken on a lot of just motifs that make them really, really easy to study and compare alongside uh, Greek tragedy and myth. Um, I know I've gotten a lot of mileage on Twitter of, out of both of Jordan Peele's films. Um, I was able to mm. compare Get Out to The Odyssey to show how it actually kind of inverts a lot of The Odyssey's narratives mm. in fascinating ways. Um, and then I actually looked at Euripides' choral lyrics, um, especially around um, his play Helen uh, and even Iphigenia Ooh. a little bit to look at uh, his film Us, which deals with uh, doubles and undergrounds and more chthonic fun things Uh, i went into persephone a bit with that one too yeah everyone get more into horror because uh tis the season tis the month uh spooky season but also it's just like (laughs) such a great way to like look at greek tragedy and like i would really love Mm -hmm. to see some good horror like interpretations of greek tragedy like where is our horror bakai film oh my god and medea medea exactly oh my gosh oh wait my bad sorry one more thing forgot to plug uh i just (laughs) said jordan peele and wow i feel like an asshole for not bringing up the foremother of black uh horror um not in the film area uh in literature tony morrison Mm -hmm. uh who wrote um a book called beloved which if folks haven't read it um it's very uh it's 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 straight horror it's very very um intense it's about uh it's a basically greek mythologizing of um the life and experience of of margaret garner who was uh a black woman who escaped slavery um in the mid 1800s and she ran away with her husband and children um to the north uh, and then was actually caught by uh, slave catchers. And so she killed her children, uh, saying that it was better than them going back to slavery. Um, 
And uh, during the time period uh, in the mid 1800s in America, that was actually the boom of uh, what is now known as the golden age of classics in America. It was like the height of neoclassicism over here. People were really into it. So there was actually a painting done of her um, at the time that was dubbed the modern Medea. An abolitionist really used her narrative to sort of be like, yo, see, slavery's bad. Like we should, you know, free people. This was all in the like ramp up to the Civil War. Um, so mm-hmm. Toni Morrison, um, who studied classics at Howard, took this narrative, um, but then also wove in uh, more aspects of like the ancient myth um, of Medea to create this book called Beloved. Um, that's all about sort of like the haunting um, of this her Medea figure um, as she sort of deals with the aftermath of slavery, of having to kill her one of her daughters, of And then her daughter actually coming back to Haunter, who she names Beloved, who the play is about, Mm. um, or the book is about. It's a very, very intense book. And actually, if you've just given birth, I would highly recommend not reading it. There are some very traumatic (laughs) scenes around breastfeeding. Um, But uh, it is one of the best horror narratives uh, using Greek tragedy that I've ever witnessed or experienced. Wow. There's very little uh, literature from classicists on it. Um, shout out to yeah. Shelley Haley if we're writing about it and Euripides with Medea back in the 90s. Uh, we appreciate that. That's funny. That book is sitting on my shelf and I've never read it, oh, but I have it. It's a lot. So It's very, yeah. good. It's very, very good. Well, I mean, where I know you. No, I just keep talking because I love this subject. No, it's I I love it. Don't worry. Um, But yeah, where can people find out a little bit more about you and find things? And then I'll let you go. Yeah. So I'm Vanessa. You can find me either on Twitter at the Octobi Hole um, or over on Medium. Uh, I run an alternative classics publication called Corona Borealis. Um, And this upcoming week, uh, from the 25th through the 31st, I will be publishing my seven-part Antigone Unbound. So if you're interested in more of these themes around haunting and Greek tragedy and Persephone and what all this mean, uh, definitely swing by and read some of it. And there will also be a playlist the final day, too, uh, to kick us off into October. Um, And also I'll be trying to do this sort of fun, like ghost haunting uh themed antigone going through the whole play uh playlist for folks so love it i will link to all of well i can't link to the things that haven't (laughs) existed yet but we'll link to the overall website so people can find it on the episode's description awesome that sounds wonderful all right so much thank you so much yeah thank you Uh, nerds, thank you all for listening. This was so much fun. I hope you enjoyed it. I mean, I think it's enjoyable even if you don't like modern horror. Still fascinating. But, you know, for those of you who are with me on an absurd love of Scream and the like, I hope you got an extra special appreciation out of this episode. So much fun. Um, Next week with the conversation episode, we will be talking about witches. That is right. Oh my God. More spooky season. I fucking love it. It's so much fun. Thank you all so much for listening. Happy spooky season. (laughs) So dorky. I am Liv and I love this shit. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. 
It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.